Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show here, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. So there's this new bill that would specify that the vice president's role in the counting of the Electoral College votes and such, it is just ministerial, which means I think he has to offer a prayer or something. No, I'm kidding. It's procedural. Basically, it's like you're just there to oversee the process, leaves him no discretion to reject any votes certified by the U.S. House and Senate. Okay, this is under the um, an amendment to the Electoral Count Act of 1887. This was at the core of what happened on January 6th, where a whole bunch of people believed that you know they could upend the entire election by getting slates of electors thrown out and that the vice president could do this, this legal theory that's now sort of at the core of what the January 6th show trial is. I'm sorry, did I I call that a show trial? I meant it. The gang has been, look, I I would have been fine with the January 6th committee doing a full-blown investigation if they had put Republicans on there and had used an adversarial format to derive truth, but they did not. They did not. They decided to make it a lecture. They're making a a one-sided documentary. And so, no, I don't have I don't have a lot of faith or confidence in their credibility. Why would I? They're not trying to get at truth. If you're trying to get at truth, you have an adversarial format where people are allowed to ask questions and challenge and express skepticism of whatever your argument is. So. Uh, the gang has spent about six months trying to get together on a compromise here. These are the uh, uh, senators with Democrats wanting to fold in a bunch of extra voting rights provisions, which would affect how votes are cast. And Republicans are wanting to stick to the more urgent business of safeguarding how the votes are counted. That compromise has been reached at all. It's pretty amazing. They announced it the other day. They're offering two bills. This is how they got at it. One is aimed at revamping the Electoral Count Act, and the other is addressing extra issues related to voting, like raising penalties if you intimidate an election worker. Okay, So they split it off into two votes. Allah Pundit, writing at hotair.com, says, I'm not thrilled with all of their reforms based on the scant description in the fact sheet. For instance, under the current ECA, Electoral Count Act, A single House member and a single senator who object to certifying a state's electoral votes, which used to just be Democrats until all of a sudden it became insurrectionist. Um, So a single person in either chamber can force a floor debate in both chambers on the matter. The new bill raises that threshold by requiring objections from one fifth of each chamber rather than just one member. Now you're going to have to have 20 percent of all the members in the chamber. And that is an improvement. He says, but Republicans nearly cleared that threshold in 2020. Okay, so they nearly cleared it, but they they didn't. So they didn't even clear that threshold in 2020 after all of that stuff. I'd say that's a probably pretty good. That's a pretty good standard then to to peg it at 20 percent. Uh, more than a fifth of the House ended up objecting on January 6th, and at one point a dozen or so Republican senators were ready to do so. 
require, but so he wants it. So it cleared the twenty percent in the House, but not in the Senate. He wants it to be one third. Okay, whatever. You 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 want to fight about the stats or whatever? If if a third of the people are objecting to this, fine. The law authorizes the. Um, oh, sorry. This is from from the fact sheet that they put out about the Electoral Count Act. The law would authorize essentially the governor of the state to submit the certification, the governor alone. Governors are powerful officials with their own bases of electoral and financial support. There were some ideas that, oh, it should be the legislatures, you know, they should be the ones doing it. State legislators are largely nobodies and should be more susceptible to corrupt pressure from the base. If you deputize one official as authoritative, the law aims to prevent competing slates of electors from being sent to Congress, one by, say, the governor, and then another from the state legislature. And then if you're going to bring in the federal courts, they would hear objections from, you know, mad, aggrieved candidates. So what the proposed bill here does is it presumably prevents this scenario in which a governor and a state legislature would conspire to overturn the state's election. Or a governor just certifies a slate of electors on behalf of the losing candidate from his own party. Under the new law, the Supreme Court would be the backstop against that. All right, so this is these are some of the highlights of what's being proposed. This was worked on by, um, it's got two bills. The first is sponsored by nine Republican senators. Tom Tillis is one of them. Along with Susan Collins, Shelley Moore Capito, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Tom Tillis, and Todd Young. There are seven Democratic senators, Joe Manchin, Ben Cardin, Chris Coons, Chris Murphy, Gene Shaheen, Kristen Sinema, and Mark Warren. Um, and the bill clarifies that states have to appoint presidential electors in accordance with the laws that the states pass before Election Day. I'm fine with that. That's as it should be. Because that's been my criticism of Mark Elias and the Democrats and how they ran their operation in 2020 with the collusive settlement, changed voting rules as the election was going on. States can set the election parameters, the rules that govern how they administer elections. But you don't get to change the rules midstream. You don't get to start the election, have early voting going on, and then all of a sudden, oh, we're going to change some rules around now that we got some votes counted. No. Or cast, I should say. No. No. You got to have you got to have your election rules in place before Election Day on what you do with the slate of electors and who's going to, you know, who's going to make that appointment. It does away with this vaguely worded concept of a, quote, failed election that's in the original Electoral Counts Act. Um, Yuval Levine over at National Review, he says it requires that the governor of each state or if not the governor, then some other specifically assigned official, somebody that that this would be their role. This would be in state law. You've got to name somebody who's going to do this. They would be the person to certify the state's slate of electors to avoid the possibility of different officials sending different slates to Congress. So you're only going to have one voice coming out of the state. Okay? 
Um, and that's what Allah Pundit was talking about. He would prefer it be the governor because the governor is going to be, you know, more likely to be thinking of the entire state and, uh, you know, not some, you know, lawmaker at the House level who is able to whip a bunch of votes uh, together. It clarifies also that the vice president's role is uh, purely ministerial, does not involve any decision-making authority. It raises the threshold for raising objections uh, to one-fifth of each uh, chamber, as I mentioned, and it allows for expedited federal judicial review of any challenges. Okay, so that's, that's essentially what this Electoral Count Act amendment does. And I, I, I think I think it needs to be fixed. I think the Electoral Count Act is just, it's just terribly worded. Really, really vague. You ever notice that, too, with the Constitution, like the later amendments that got passed, the ones that are closer, you know, to our lives than uh, our lifespans than the one, uh, you know, than the founders? The ones the founders did seem pretty clear to me when my reading of it. I mean, again, I'm not a lefty. So when I read the Second Amendment, it says what it says. But as you like the the bill of uh, after the Bill of Rights, like the subsequent amendments, it it got overly lawyerly. You know, it's not an insult to lawyers, although I guess it is. It's, I'm not trying to be like mean or nasty. I'm just saying it just got like the wordsmithing that was done on the language left a lot of vagaries, and maybe that was by design or something, or maybe it was just incompetence, I don't know. But this thing needs to be, it, this thing needs to be buttoned up, the Electoral Count Act. Because when you have people with such differing opinions about what the plain text means and what, it should not, it should not be ambiguous. Who certifies the slate of electors and how do you count them? It should not be ambiguous. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. As proposed, the bipartisan Electoral Count Act reform bill's got nine Republican sponsors. Tom Tills from North Carolina is one of them. And Yuval Levin at uh, National Review says, I gather from Republican leadership staffers that Mitch McConnell is positively disposed towards both bills. And that if they make it through committee without significant changes, they should be able to get the votes that they need. Wait, what? Through committee? How old-fashioned. Going to do the work through a committee? That's amazing. Yeah, we'll see if it actually happens and whether Democrats in both of the houses are going to be satisfied with an approach that does not nationalize elections That's what they always try to do. If they're not trying to create, he says, new paths to federal judicial intervention and state election law enforcement. But it's a good proposal with a chance of becoming law, and that's good to see. Let me jump over here and get Matt on. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the program. How are you? Good. How are you, Pete? Hey, I'm good. What's going on? My question here is, you know, we have the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act for voting. Uh, started in 1964, been amended many, many times. Uh, part of that is that states that are defined under the law, mostly red states, mostly southern states, have to have all this stuff pre-cleared. Anytime they make... Not anymore. Well, that was my question. Um, I know in 19, 1980, the pre-clearance was still, uh, was still uh, something that the Supreme Court had actually 
said was was constitutional, but they got rid of the the other part of that act. I don't know if we're so we're not having to pre-clear anything anymore in the South under the Voting Rights Act. I don't know if anything anymore. Um, the the pre-clearance was for the the manner in the way the manner in which states administer election law and how they craft their laws and you know this is the the poll taxes and that sort of stuff and the literacy tests and how many jelly beans are in the jar and civics tests and all of that um a lot and so whenever they wanted to redraw maps or rewrite their laws or something they'd have to get pre-clearance and there are different steps and all of that you got a whole wing of the department of justice that that did all that this is this is simply about the electoral college vote. Okay, so, so this is not going to impact any of that. Correct. This is just right now, right? Because we don't have a national election. This is a, 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 right. People don't right. understand this, right? We have fifty individual state elections all on the same day, right? And so every state has its own method of running their own elections, as long as they don't violate the constitutional uh, requirements and rules. Uh, they're free to administer their own elections. And then once you find out um, uh, how the people voted and whatever, then you present your slate of electors. And that's through the Electoral College, and that's how you become president, right? So this is trying to codify in a clearer way who is responsible for presenting those um, uh, those that slate of electors. Because what they right. don't want to have happen or see, see it happen again, which is you've got different entities in a state that are claiming under the current electoral count act that, Oh, it was a failed election. And so they say that, and then they present their own slate of electors. And now you've got two different slates. Well, which one do you, which one do you take? They're both allowed under the current law. So this would say, no, you have to determine right up front who is in charge of uh, creating the slate and sending it over. And then that does not get to change during or after that election cycle. If you want to go back and change it later, fine, but you have to have somebody as the point of contact, the authority figure basically for the vote and the slate uh, uh, the, the, the slate counting. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Well, of course, the election of 1876, we saw two groups of electors coming from multiple states here in the South, and it was up at that time that for the Congress to decide who they're going to pick. Um, and that was the great compromise. They they picked the Democrat slate uh, when the Republicans agreed to end Reconstruction. So it's not without precedent when we had multiple states sending multiple right. groups of electors. And this is know. and the point here is to avoid this from happening again because uh-huh. it creates unrest, right? When right. people, I mean, because now because that's a, I mean, could you imagine if that happened today? Could you imagine like what you just described had that happened today? Right. Just like, oh, you know what? Uh, yeah, you took a vote, and we're just going to ignore that, and we're just going to pick this other slate over here, <laughs> and we're going to take the Well, vote. it reminds me somewhat of, uh, you know, the election of, 18, of 1960, when there was a very, very close election between Nixon and, um, and JFK. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it became clear, and, and, and historians now understand that, that the—, the uh, the daily machine up in Chicago manufactured about 20,000 votes. That's, that's, that's not even a qu- up for question. That's kind of an historical fact because that's what they did. And using those 20,000 votes, Kennedy managed to take the, the state of Illinois. Then Archie Parr down in Texas managed to, to do at least 7,000 and, and Kennedy managed to take the state of Texas. Um, and when it, 
when it came out that that, that basically put Kennedy over the top, you know, it, it was Eisenhower who called who called Nixon in and said, "Look, I'm offended. This is I, this is not right." Because he was personally offended. Of course, he hated Nixon. Eisenhower hated Nixon, but said, "I will go to the American people. We will impound those votes. We will take it to the courts, and I'll get you into the presidency." And you know, Nixon Nixon thought about it, and he said, "I." I can't do that to the country. Right, because you would uh, have half of the country that voted for Kennedy angry at the other half, and, exactly. and, the, and the half angry that uh, that Kennedy stole it would be angry as well. Exactly. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the uh, uh, the Thank history, so Matt. Thank, yeah, thanks for the call, sir. Take All care. Right. Yeah, Bye. appreciate it. Um, so we'll see if Democrats want to get on board with this. Like I said, I think it's got uh, a good chance of passing. I think it does need to be clarified. Um and I don't like the fact that the current version of it does not define what a failed election is. The failed election provision um, that empowers state legislatures to choose a new method of appointing their electors if the election was failed, but it's not defined in the current law. And so they get to just define it however they would like. And I'm not cool with that because government is a useful servant, but a fearful master. Congressman Adam Schiff is uh, letting the cat out of the bag. The target is Justice Clarence Thomas. That's what apparently, yeah, that's what this is about. The January 6th thing. I mean, yes, yes, it's about Donald Trump, but they're going after Justice Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas. And uh, Schiff was on some talking head show over the weekend and said there are lines that Shouldn't be crossed, but those lines involve sitting Supreme Court justices not presiding or or appearing or taking action in cases in which their spouse may be implicated. And in this case, for Clarence Thomas to issue a decision in a case of dissent, in a case where Congress is trying to get documents and those documents might involve his own wife, that's the line that's been crossed. And I think for Congress to be looking into these issues, looking into conflict of interest issues, but here looking into issues whether it involves the wife of a Supreme Court justice or anyone else, if they have information or role in an effort to overturn an election, yes, they're not excluded from examination. Gosh, this guy, he's exhausting. So Jonathan Turley, he responded, he says um, that Schiff is using Jenny Thomas as a smokescreen because this is about taking out Justice Clarence Thomas. He said on a committee that was tasked with uncovering what happened on January 6th, 2021, Congressman Adam Schiff for brains is now saying that the committee's jurisdiction would extend to what the Supreme court did a year later. That's more of a case of mission creep. That is a radical departure from past practices and longstanding interbranch committee. It could create dangerous precedent as members use such committees to investigate jurists on the motivations or communications leading to their opinions. The use 
of the January 6th committee in this way would reaffirm the criticism of the committee as a partisan exercise. The fact that Liz Cheney has now joined in these calls as well, that highlights the absence of even a modicum of balance on the committee. There isn't a single voice on that committee that's like, whoa, 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 why would you be doing that? Mm-mm. It would also constitute one of the most intrusive acts ever taken against the court outside of a formal impeachment proceeding. It's a threat that should be universally condemned and immediately withdrawn. Spoiler, it won't be. Speaking of show trials, um, the Obama administration issued Title IX guidance told all of the colleges and universities to crack down on sexual harassment. Remember that? Sex crackdown on sexual harassment, sexual violence cases happening on campus, happening off campus. And the guidance essentially tipped the scales in the direction of the accusers, typically women. And then they made it, you know, the threat was explicit that if you don't do these things and adopt these rules, your funding Federal funding for schools is on the line. You'll lose the money. Schools were directed to use a standard that is in the civil court system, which is called preponderance of evidence, which is like think of the scales. you got 50-50, 50%, 50%. It's tied. So all you need is just a 50% plus one. Just a little bit, and it tips the scale in one direction. Just a little bit more. Preponderance, just whatever side has more. And you weigh that, right, in civil cases. Now, in criminal, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Not shadow of a doubt, but reasonable doubt, which is defined as the doubt that a reasonable person might have, and which is a silly definition but because you're using the very same word to define the word, but whatever. It's not shadow of a doubt. It's reasonable doubt. The Obama-era guidance tipped the scales towards the accusers. So schools were told you got to use the lowest standard, the lowest standard of proof, in these cases under Title IX, which bars sex-based discrimination. They were discouraged from allowing the uh, the parties to cross-examine one another because they said, oh, that could be traumatic. That could be intimidating for the victim. Accused students had no right to a live hearing or to even see the evidence against them. Schools were allowed to use single investigator models in Title IX cases, a single investigator model, one person, and they're going to get to the truth. And that's it. And you don't you don't have a say. You don't get you, you don't get representation. You can't even be in the room. You may not even be given all of the evidence against you. Just told that you've been accused. Oh, and the sole investigator, the single investigator mo- uh, model in these cases, you don't just investigate. No, no, you get to prosecute, of course, but you also get to be judge and jury, which seems totally fair. Kind of like the J6 committee. The reasoning here, ostensibly, was that if you gave too many due process rights to the perpetrators, the alleged perpetrators, then you could make real victims hesitant to come forward. Falsely accused students with fewer opportunities to defend themselves were simply collateral damage in the victim-centric model. Oh, well, during the Trump administration, writes Ryan Mills at National Review, he says... Former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos pushed back, issuing more balanced regulations requiring schools to offer basic due process rights to both the accuser and the accused in these cases. Accused students were presumed innocent until proven guilty. 
They had the right to a live hearing. They could cross-examine. They could see the evidence. Schools could again use a stronger, clear, and convincing standard of evidence. But now we got Joe Biden, Obama 3.0, without any of the charisma, any of the ability to deliver a speech, any of the... All right, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. In late June, uh, Biden... Biden's administration proposed sweeping new regulations that are going to roll back a lot of the protections fulfilling the promise that he made during the campaign. The right to a live hearing, gone. Right to cross-examination, also gone. Schools could launch sexual assault investigations even without a formal complaint. So a rumor, somebody got a little handsy at a party last weekend. Single investigator model, back on the table. Instead of turning over their evidence, investigators could simply offer the parties a written summary of the relevant evidence. Here you go. Uh, I wrote up a a four-paragraph essay here. Uh, If you just sign this and uh, your life is over. There you go. Congratulations. Eric Rosenberg is an Ohio-based lawyer who specializes in defending students falsely accused of Title IX sexual assault violations And he says, you're going back to the dark ages, in my view, the dark ages, or otherwise known as progressivism. It's funny because it's true. If Biden's proposed regulations are approved after a 60-day comment period, you're going to have a more difficult time fighting off allegations at colleges and universities that are often clearly motivated to find them guilty. This is a massive piece at National Review. Lots of people, and one guy in particular, a... uh, Columbia University student Ben Feebleman, who is a avowed liberal, he said, falsely accused. But the guy, the girl that he was out with and she was trying to hook up with him and he kept saying no. And you'll thank me in the morning and all this. They were messing around. And then she was like, I want to have relations. And he was like, no. And so she kept on badgering him to the point where he started recording it. He recorded 26 or 29 times. And they they convicted him. They convicted his school convicted him and threw him out. He then sued. He won a boatload of money, bought a Lamborghini, drove it into the ground as a statement and got his diploma. That was how Columbia did it. That's what we're going back to. All right, so a reminder, tomorrow is the Charlotte City Council elections. Go vote, people. Your chance to put Republicans on the city council is tomorrow. Not kidding. Actually, there's a chance. We'll actually talk with two of the candidates uh, at the start of the next hour. Uh, First, wrapping up this Title IX show trial uh, guidance that the uh, uh, Biden administration is now re-implementing. So after, because Obama came in, and they they blew all of this up. Now, my position on this has been from the very beginning. Right. What are colleges doing investigating any of this at all? This is not your purview. This is not your job. It's not your expertise. Stop it. This should not be handled by colleges. If crimes occurred, go to the police. These are crimes. You don't get to set up an entire shadow legal system here. But for a long time, colleges want to keep these stats hush-hush 
because they don't want it being known that, you know, their campus might be a bit of a hotbed of, you know, rapes or something. Eh, it's not such a great recruitment tool, you know? Well, I mean, yes, I, can, I guess for the rapists it would be, but not for, not for most other people. They don't want to send their kids to a school that has a lot of sexual assaults or whatever. So, you know, so you're, you're going you're gonna to manage the process for what? For yourselves. For yourselves. You're, you're university employees. You're not working for those students. You work for the university. After the Obama-era guidance was released back in 2011, schools built up their Title IX bureaucracies and allegations of sexual misconduct on campus skyrocketed. As the number of allegations increased, we saw more and more allegations that are false or completely unsupported by the preponderance of the evidence, said uh, the, uh, the Ohio Title IX lawyer, Rosenberg, what was his first name here? I forget. It was, uh, eh, where did he go? Eric, Eric Rosenberg. Um, some modest improvements were made under uh, Betsy DeVos, and uh, students are guaranteed hearings. Their advisors are allowed to ask questions at the hearings. Students have more of an ability to be heard. But even under those rules, the same administrators are making decisions, and schools still have a lot of discretion over the hearings and what questions are asked. Kimberly Lau, who represents both accusers and the accused, said schools are still often motivated to favor accusers during internal hearings and to let the courts reverse them if they see fit. That way, the school can maintain their public image of strongly protecting sexual assault victims. It's just about managing liability, she said. Um, here's another one, uh, uh, one of the accused. Uh, he says uh, he does not believe universities have any business trying to adjudicate any alleged crimes. Universities simply lack the expertise, and their primary motivation is injustice. It's protecting themselves. He says, quote, why not have a murder panel? Why not have a tax evasion panel? Why not have a panel for evading corn subsidy laws? It just seems absurd. Why is a college adjudicating a crime? If a crime has happened, you go to the police. Bottom line, not a system designed to help students. It's just not. But this is what we're returning to. Burn it down, salt the earth, take their endowments. I'm so done. I like I'm so fed up with the the education racket in America. I'm just so fed up with it. If now, hey, if you are fed up with the lines at the DMV, listen to this. Press release. North Carolina Division of Motor Vehicles has announced the Q Anywhere project. It is a uh it's a decentralized conspiracy theory advanced on message boards about how North Carolina driver's licenses are infecting you with 5G microchips. Q anywhere. No, I'm kidding. It's actually, no, it's just a Q. It's like line Q, but you can't say line anywhere. So Q anywhere, but it's the letter Q anywhere. Okay. Q Anywhere allows customers at driver's license offices to check in by scanning a QR code and texting a short message to get and hold their place in line. So you still have to go, 
and you still got to wait around, but you're now allowed to wait outside of the line. Isn't that nice of them? Yeah, they have finally, yeah, there's, uh, for, uh, if you don't have a cell phone, DMV is working to implement a mobile paging system like those used in the restaurant industry. Well, I mean, in defense of the DMV here, that technology for restaurants, that's only like a couple of weeks old, right? I mean, it's very new technology. How could we have expected them to figure out how to call someone's cell phone number or give them the little coaster pager thing? I mean, yeah, just very, very new technology. It's actually now the queue anywhere is up and running in just over half of the state's 116 driver's license offices. The remaining offices will be added in the coming weeks. So when you show up and you scan the QR code, I guess, uh, and uh, text a short message, and then you get your place in line, and then you are free to queue anywhere. So you can wait in your car. You could run some other errands in the immediate area while you pass the time. And then you get a text message uh, to enter the lobby when staff is ready to serve them. So, of course, what's going to happen now when you don't show up, immediately you're going to show up and someone else is going to have skipped you in line because they were there and you weren't or something. By the way, have you tried to book an appearance, an in-person meet at the DMV on their website? Awful. Every single office has its own, uh, its own, its own link. So you can't see any of the open times and days in like a general format. You have to go into every single county individually. And then if you back out and go back in, someone may have taken that appointment slot from you. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. 